Russia's assault on Ukraine last February seemed like it was going to be, and certainly seemed like it should have been, one of those clarifying moments. A 9-11, a Pearl Harbour, a monstrous affront to law, order and elementary norms of civilised behaviour which would unite a rightly outraged world in determination to confront and contain the perpetrator. It hasn't worked out entirely like that. Several important countries, usually broadly thought of as allies of the West, or at least by the West, have perched themselves on the fence. These countries, in fairness, were not fans of Russia's onslaught upon its neighbour. The only countries which have voted with Russia in the various UN resolutions condemning it are client states like Syria and Belarus, or weirdo tyrannies like North Korea and Eritrea. This episode of The Foreign Desk considers the approach of three of the countries which have positioned themselves as swing voters, on Ukraine and more generally. South Africa, which is still apparently planning to invite President Vladimir Putin to a BRICS summit in August, despite being technically obliged as a member state of the International Criminal Court to arrest him on arrival. Brazil, whose previous president was a fan and friend of Putin, and whose current president has suggested Ukraine in some respects bought war upon itself and Saudi Arabia, which despite its dependency on American arms, has actually deepened its relationship with Russia. Is this principle or opportunism? Is there perhaps some value in having non-aligned actors on the global stage? Could they be won over? And if so, how? This is The Foreign Desk. There's a financial reason. The ANC is financially on the ropes, having almost bankrupt the country. They've done a pretty good job of bankrupting themselves. And their biggest single funder is a manganese company in South Africa, which is indirectly owned by Viktor Vexelberg, who is a sanctioned Russian oligarch. For much of the Cold War, the Saudis and the Americans had lots of shared interests. They wanted regimes that were pro-Western, they wanted economic stability, they wanted maritime security. And certainly both America and the Saudis were very anti-communist and anti-leftist movements. They want a reliable and secure source of energy from the Middle East. They don't want borders to be changed in the Middle East. And interestingly enough, this is something that China also wants today. So you see an overlap of interests between Saudi Arabia, China and the United States. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. I'm Andrew Muller. Well, joining me first of all from Cape Town is Tony Leon, author of Future Tense, Reflections on My Troubled Land, and formerly the longest-serving leader of the opposition in South Africa's post-1994 parliament. Tony also served as South Africa's ambassador to Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. Tony, first of all, would it be a fair assessment to say that South Africa sees itself as a natural leader of the Africa? continent? Yeah, certainly it does. And certainly it was. I think we can put South Africa's continental leadership in the past tense for a range of reasons. You know, we've always had a fairly weak hand in the sense of where we're situated. South Africa's not Turkey. It's the southern tip of the African continent. So it's not really geostrategically important. But South Africa was very important because of the example of its soft power, because of the whole Mandela miracle, 1994 transition, the new democracy, the darling of the world. That gave it a lot of credit, if you like, in the global diplomacy bank. 
And the second item of credit, also sadly in the past tense, was South Africa had a lot of economic heft and clout. It was, for the first 20 years of democracy, the largest economy in Africa. It's now no longer that. That position is occupied by Nigeria. And we have such a faltering electricity and other infrastructural systems collapses here that our economy is barely growing, about 0.1% a year. You compare it to the outperforming African economies like Kenya, for example, about 5%, Ethiopia, even though it's had a civil war. And South Africa's economy was recently grey-listed because of compromises in the financial system in terms of funding terrorist monies and so on. So it's lost a great deal of that. And it doesn't lead the continent in the sense that if you look at the various votes, Andrew, in the United Nations since last February on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the continent of Africa does not speak with one voice. It's a divided continent. So about half the countries line up on the abstention side with South Africa. The other half name Russia as the, correctly in my view, as the aggressor country in that conflict. And one or two holdouts like Zimbabwe actually take Russia's side explicitly rather than implicitly. And then the final coup de grace, if you like, was when South Africa was disinvited from the G7 meeting currently in Japan. And now the leader of a 50,000-person country, the president of the Federated Islamic Republic of Comores, is representing Africa, not because too many folk know who he is, but because he holds the seat as the chairman of the African Union. So now, instead of having a country representing Africa, which South Africa did in a proxy sort of way, you now have an institution representing and leading Africa. On that subject of Ukraine, that is, which is key to this episode, you said that your own view was that Russia was clearly the aggressor nation in this conflict. Why has South Africa on the world stage been so equivocal about this? I think there are two cardinal reasons. The one is, while Mandela was president, and certainly when Mbeki was president, so for the first 18 years of South Africa's democratic transition, South Africa wanted to be a big figure in the world, and it wanted to punch above its weight, and to some extent it did so. And one of the basic understandings, whatever the historical sympathies and loyalties might have been, was that you can't actually aggravate the major powers in the world on the Western side. So South Africa managed, I think, quite successfully to navigate that particular channel. What's happened since then, to put it in crude terms, is that without the strong leadership of Mandela and Mbeki, we've landed up in a situation where the basic impulses, the historical impulse of the ANC have come to the fore. So, for example, the ANC conference resolution, when they met in December in Johannesburg, said, and I quote from it, Andrew, that the United States had provoked the war with Russia over Ukraine, hoping to put Russia in its place, quote unquote. And I think there, unvarnished, you have the view of the governing party of South Africa. That is their viewpoint. That's their standing. And then the secondary fact, apart from history, resentment of the West, grievance, CIA's role in Africa, all those particular tropes, There's a financial reason. The ANC is financially on the ropes, having almost bankrupted the country. They've done a pretty good job of bankrupting themselves. And their biggest single funder 
is a manganese company in South Africa, which is indirectly owned by Victor Vexelberg, who is a sanctioned Russian oligarch. So quite aside from any ties that bind through history and struggle, you've got a financial interest because Russia or oligarchs close to Putin actually are funding the African National Congress. And those are the facts on the ground, as they say. So if the ANC's support for Russia, really, when you phrase it like that, if they're saying that Russia is not the party at fault here, are there ways that the West could win South Africa fully over? Can it be won from where it presently is? Well, I certainly don't know that it can be won under the current government of South Africa, mainly because the leadership here is so weak. That's the irony. I mean, we've got a president with an enormous amount of power, and who knows what he actually thinks, because he goes along to get along, is his style of leadership. And whatever the party's ideological G-spot is, he's just happy to go and find it. But the terms of trade that South Africa enjoys with the United States and the West are extraordinary. I mean, we have a 400 billion rand, that's still quite a lot of pounds, even on our depleted exchange rate, duty-free access advantage with the United States. And that's entirely because of something called the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act in which South Africa participates. Now, we could stop participating. It's not a bilateral trade agreement, Andrew. It's a unilateral, if you like, gift of the United States, which is up for review in 2025. So if you look at the terms of trade with the EU, the UK, and uh, the United States, and you put them against a trade with Russia, the advantage of the South African trade with the West, broadly defined, is 15 versus 1 to Russia. We barely have any meaningful trade with Russia compared to the enormous trade advantage we enjoy with the West broadly. So the question is, is the West prepared to use its leverage to at least get South Africa not to align itself unthinkingly with every decision made in Washington or in London, but to simply live up to its own commitments, its own proclaimed commitments, its own constitutional obligations to respect public international law, to respect national sovereignty. There are a whole list of them mm. in international law, each of which Russia has violated on its face. I'm not going into any esoteric matters. It's mm. quite obvious. It's the ICC is another commitment that South Africa has made as a signatory, founding signatory to the Statute of Rome. And what does South Africa do? It's invited Putin here in August to a BRICS summit. But meantime, we have these lawful obligations, one of which is if someone's an indicted war criminal, as Putin has been indicted by the IC, you cannot have him in your country without arresting him. So if he arrives here in August and we don't take the act which we have undertaken to do, that's a further problem. So, you know, not for me to tell countries outside South Africa how to behave towards South Africa to get South Africa to live up to its own commitments, I would say trade is a very, very powerful leverage. After all, it was trade that was used, and sanctions, in fact, to bring the apartheid government to its senses in the dying days of the previous regime. I'm not suggesting we impose sanctions on South Africa, but certainly the West has quite a lot of firepower which I think it should judiciously deploy, not to force South Africa to do anything, but simply to remind South Africa or the government, not the people, that it's made certain international obligations and needs to live up to them. 
Tony, thank you. As always, that was Tony Leon, former South African diplomat and politician. His book, Future Tense, Reflections on My Troubled Land, is available now in paperback. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Joining me now from New York is Cecilia Tornaghi, a Brazilian-American journalist, currently the managing editor of America's Quarterly and senior director for policy at the America's Society and Council of the Americas. Cecilia, first of all, I think a lot of people have been quite startled by the attitude that Brazil has taken vis-a-vis Ukraine over the past year and a bit. I think there was an assumption that President Bolsonaro, having been removed Moved from Brazil's presidency would deplete Putin's pool of allies by one, but apparently not. Lula goes way back with Putin. Lula is a founder member of the BRICS, which was only BRIC at the time, right? And he and Putin go back a long way from before Russia was invading other countries. So they have a long-term relationship. And Lula and Brazil Now they're aligning their positions, but the president was speaking out saying, you know, it's everybody's fault and Ukraine is also at fault and the US and Europe are fostering the war. When he said all these things that he has since walked back, at the same time, the Brazilian diplomatic representation at the UN was voting to condemn the invasion, to say, you know, to Ukraine was a sovereign country and so on and so forth. So Lula has since walked back those previous comments slightly, saying, no, we are here for peace. But his position is basically, we need to talk to both sides. If you want to reach peace, you can't join one side at war because you won't be able to reach anything if you don't have a dialogue line. Okay, makes sense. But you have to remember that Brazil does, you know, in terms of the direct relationship, Lula and Putin have a relationship much longer prior to this. And Brazil does depend on the fertilizers that come from Russia. So on since Bolsonaro, that, you know, mostly economic take on we need the fertilizers uh, sort of like was the main driver of the relationship. But with Lula, you have that add on of his prior connection. So it's not completely out of character for him to try to be the negotiator here or the peace bringer. But, you know, he has been way more outspoken, not only on that, but in general, since he started his third term, he has been, you know, speaking his mind way more often, even when the diplomatic position of the country itself is slightly different or more diplomatic than he is. But underneath all of that, is there any deeply embedded principle at play here? Does he have actual sympathy for Russia's position or is it more likely, and I can understand why this would still be a thing at large on the old school Latin American left, just an ingrained suspicion of everything the United States says or does? I think it's more of his principle of being against war in principle than either way. So there is the relationship with Russia. There is a frenemy relationship with the U.S. But more so, Lula sees this as a waste war in itself of time, of money, of people, of you know health for the world. So he has this sort of like magnanimous view of peace and you know, I can do this. He was also, you have to remember that during his first two terms, Lula was sort of like a... a Brock star, a darling of the international community. So I, he might have thought right coming into it that he could still bank on this and actually be the uh, the 
you know, the, the reason in the room and bringing everybody together. It's proving way more difficult than I think he even thought he could do at start. You know, his darling status has gone crashing down after his takes on, on Ukraine. So he's sort of like grappling with this new world that he's, you know, he's coming into a third term in a completely different world than the one he, he was president from 2003 to 2010. We might as well be in a different century right now, right? Is part of it just looking at where Brazil is on the map and thinking we don't need any permanent alliances. We don't need any security guarantees. We are the dominant country on a continent. We have no natural predators. We can basically pick and choose. And if it's in our interests to do that, then that's what we will do. And that is very much Lula's view. Lula's is one of the, probably the first Brazilian president that actually decided that Brazil should be a big player in the international scenario. He just said, why not? Everything that you just said, right? We're big, we're a region leader. Why are we cowing below and say, oh, we're a poor underdeveloped country? So he took this position that, nope, we're big. We're going to be active in the global stage. He sees that Brazil should and must take its position as a leader. He's also a multipolar world defender for, you know, he's a real believer that the world is better off without, you know, one or two major positives. He is also a South-South evangelist, right? He believes that the South needs to negotiate and trade and exchange policies and experiences across the board. So, All these positions kind of bring him back onto this. Yeah, well, U.S., you can think this. EU, you can think that. We are here. We are a peaceful region. We don't have wars. And so you should learn from us. But he does see that Brazil should have a much stronger place and position in the global stage. He's been fighting for it for a while at the UN and pushing and negotiating and talking to everybody about restructuring and reforming the UN, especially the Security Council. So he does have that view that Brazil has a role to play. And I think that right now, the world, what is it at play in the world? You know, he's not going to take sides on China and the US. Absolutely not. Brazil needs both and trades with both. So he will keep the neutrality there as well. And the one major element in the world today is Russia, Ukraine. So if the United States and or Europe decided that they really, as a matter of priority, wanted Brazil completely on board, where, for example, Ukraine was concerned, and ideally, if you get Brazil on board, then the Southern American continent follows with it. Is there any either carrot or stick that could be proffered? Is there anything that anybody can offer Brazil that they want that badly or anything anybody can threaten Brazil with that they fear to that extent? I think it's hard, but they're trying. There is a <laughs> parliamentary group from the EU that's actually visiting parliamentarians in Brazil, trying to see you know, what is the positioning and work around Congress, which is at the moment mostly opposition to Lula. So there is this conversation going on. There was a parliamentary group created in Brazil as like Friends of Ukraine or a name of that sort. So this discussion, this conversation is happening on one side. Then you have next week, the Assistant Secretary of State, Brian Nichols, will be in Brazil. And he has, you know, a large agenda. He's meeting everyone and everybody for a few days in Brazil next week. So I don't think anybody's given up and they're looking for ways to keep the conversation. Brazil and the U.S. are not going to 
we're not enemies at all, right? So these two countries will continue. We just have different positions and Brazil wants to state its independence from US influence, so to speak, without being an enemy. Cecilia, thank you. That was the managing editor of America's Quarterly, Cecilia Tornaghi. You're listening to The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. I'm joined finally from Paris by Bernard Heichel, Professor of Near Eastern Studies at Princeton University. Bernard is also the author of Saudi Arabia in Transition, Insights on Social, Political, Economic and Religious Change. First of all, how much influence does Saudi Arabia actually have over the wider Arab world? Is it actually as influential as it probably likes to think it is? I mean, it is influential, but there are other countries also that are influential in the Middle East. It has convening power because of Mecca and Medina, and it can bring together, as it has recently, leaders of both the Arab and Muslim worlds. But can it influence every Arab country? It has more influence in some than in others. So, for instance, it has considerable influence in the Sudan. It has considerable influence over Egypt because Egypt is somewhat dependent financially on it. It has limited influence in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, because Iran is much more important in those countries. So I think it depends on the country we're talking about as to whether Saudi Arabia is influential or not. And it has probably more pointedly to the point of this program, a historically close relationship with the United States, if not necessarily the wider West. But has that relationship with the United States in particular shifted significantly in the last few years? Yeah, I think that the relationship with the US, you know, since 1945, which is when the relationship began in earnest, you know, has fluctuated and 9-11, for instance, was a low point in the relationship. The invasion of Iraq in 2003 was one where the Saudis were not in agreement with America. They had a particularly bad relationship, the Saudis, with the Obama administration because of some of the policies that the Obama administration undertook at the time. With Trump, it was very transactional. It looked quite good. But then when the Saudis were attacked in September 2019, by the Iranians, the Trump administration did nothing. And now under Biden, I think the relationship is not good at all. You use the word transactional there in relation to the Saudi relationship with the United States while Donald Trump was president, but hasn't it always been basically transactional? There's there's not really any pretense from either Riyadh or Washington of any, you know, sense of common history or shared values that you hear when the United States and Western European nations talk of each other. Yeah, I don't think values is the way to think of the relationship. And I don't think it is just transactional. So for instance, for much of the Cold War, so roughly 1945 till 1990, the Saudis and the Americans had lots of shared interests, not just in terms of security from the United States for the Saudi regime in return for oil supplies, but both Saudi Arabia and the United States wanted certain kinds of regimes in the Middle East. They wanted regimes that were pro-Western. They wanted economic stability. They wanted maritime security. And certainly both America and the Saudis were very anti-communist and anti-leftist movements. So they cooperated very closely in terms of funding and financing political and ideological movements against communists. So, no, there were lots of shared interests, and those interests continue 
beyond mere transactional oil for security framework, which is how often the relationship is characterized. I think both countries deeply want stability, by which I mean they want a reliable and secure source of energy from the Middle East. They don't want borders to be changed in the Middle East. And interestingly enough, in terms of stability and security of energy, this is something that China also wants today. So you see an overlap of interest between Saudi Arabia, China and the United States. The reason we're doing this program is that, of course, over the last 16 months or whatever it is we're up to now, the United States and Western Europe has believed that there is a great cause in play, that this is one of those moments at which every nation should pick a side. And this is obviously about Russia's onslaught against Ukraine. From Riyadh's point of view, do they really care one way or the other what happens in Ukraine? Well... The Saudis do not consider the war in Ukraine to be their war. They consider this a war between the United States and Russia, and they would rather not pick sides. Uh, So you'll see, for instance, that the Saudis have maintained fairly close relations with the Russians when it comes to agreeing on oil supplies. They're part of a, a group called OPEC Plus. But at the same time, the Saudis have offered $400 million of humanitarian aid to the Ukrainians. So the Saudis essentially, not unlike the Indians, by the way, have preferred to remain neutral in this war and to you know, do business with both sides, both the West and the Russians simultaneously. India, for instance, has imported a huge amount of Russian oil. The Saudis have done some of that as well. And that's the position that I think a lot of countries in the global South have opted for. In that respect, Saudi Arabia is not unique. Well, indeed not. But supposing it was decided by the United States in particular that Saudi Arabia was a properly key component of its alliance, or at least could be a properly key component of its alliance against Russia, what would it take to win Saudi Arabia unequivocally over? Is there anything Saudi Arabia wants that badly? To understand the Saudi perspective, I think you need to look at how they have been negotiating or talking to the Americans about normalization with Israel. Uh, So here you really see what the Saudis want. And they've asked essentially for two things from the Americans for normalization. The first is they want the Americans to help them with building a nuclear project and program in the country, in Saudi Arabia. Of course, they claim this is to do with energy production, but essentially they want to be able to enrich uranium themselves and to produce it and to have power plants. The second thing they want, which I think is even more important than the nuclear demand, is they want an ironclad NATO-like guarantee from the United States and the West of protection, of security and protection of of Saudi Arabia from external aggression. And here they have in mind Iran in particular. And the U.S. has not been willing to give them that guarantee, that NATO-like guarantee, for a variety of reasons. And so I don't think the Saudis would ever come on board 100% with the West, on Ukraine or on anything else for that matter. In the meantime, though, is there anything the Saudis can do to make themselves useful or can be made useful by the West? I'm thinking of the role they played in mediating, say, prisoner swaps between Russia and Ukraine late last year. Does their relative detachment potentially give them a role as kind of a broker? 
Yes, I mean, but they're not alone in that respect. The UAE has also played that role as broker. The Indians can also play that role. So, you know, the Saudis want to be helpful. They would rather not see a war in the Ukraine. They are not in favor of the aggression that the Russians have engaged in. They wouldn't like their own borders to be invaded by an outside power. So they have a, uh, they're a status quo power. You can think of the Saudis as a status quo power in terms of wanting an international order that is stable and that is ultimately Western dominated. They don't really want to see another political order emerging, but at the same time, they realize that the West is, and the American in particular, is on the decline and that you have a move away from a unipolar order to a multipolar order with China rising. And they want to be able to have a diversified portfolio of strategic relations with not just the United States and Europe, but also with China and Russia. Bernard, thank you. That was Professor Bernard Heichel of Princeton University. His book, Saudi Arabia in Transition, is available now in hardback. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.